I just want to sneak one of these in. You know, maybe it's a little bit early, uh, but I want to do it anyways. So, Merry Christmas. All right? That's what I want you to have. That's what I want you to enjoy. That's what I want you to share with others. And so that's why in, in the handout, if you've got one, we have a card, an invitation card. May you prepare well for Christmas, and may you bring somebody with you. And to help us continue with that, uh, I want to start a brand new series this week called Light of the World. That's what Jesus is. And then he told his closest pals, that's what he wants us to be. So part of your Merry Christmas is to understand and to walk into being the light of the world. And to help to get you the, uh, the most of our times together, uh, we have provided a section on our website called um, Latest Message Notes. And there you can follow along. You can add your own notes if you want. And then at the end, you can email yourself either just the outline or the outline plus your notes. We just thought that that might be really helpful for you. And there is also the, um, the written handout. If you'd like to take your notes in a more physical pen and paper kind of way, you can do that as well. So go ahead. Get set. And let's start to look into the bright, bright light of the world. One of the reasons that I say that Christmas is the most wonderful time of the year is because Christmas, with my family right now, is not complicated. Um, it's not complicated yet, might be a better way to think of it. And eventually, every family gets complicated. But right now, we're not dealing with any of the uh, extras. We don't have the extra stuff. And so, you know, extra things like people in other countries that you have to manage that kind of thing. And we don't have any of our kids with significant others that we have to manage there. So for the most part, we all get along. Um, we're all interested. We're all excited for Christmas. And we, we, we have grown to the place where we all enjoy watching somebody open the gifts that we God, the ones that we were thinking about them for. It's not just thinking about ourselves, and that's been a great transition as well. So this has been great watching our kids, and they're, they're sort of baffled by the idea. I, I didn't know that it would feel so great for them to like what I got them, and they've, they've had that new kind of thing, and so we're still in a good season. Uh, we still try to figure out, we have to do that, the logistics of how to get to the, the who's and the where's and put them all together, who goes to the different houses, and, uh, but, but it's not overly challenging. It's an exciting time, and, and, and uh, that makes it a fun time, right? Kids are so excited. They're so full of anticipation, um, and that kid thing is not always age-dependent. Um, it can be an easy season to love. Again, uh, it's easy for us to love now because for us, it's not complicated. One of the big reasons um, that it's such a big deal to me to think about it like that is that I know lots of people and I know that lots of people don't have what I have. There are so many who have complicated, uh, their, their family of origin is just complicated. So some of you immediately, you know exactly what I'm talking about. There are, there are many families that uh, they're just not able to all be in the same room without weirdness kind of igniting and then burning up Christmas. You know, two or three can get together, uh, but, but when four or five, whatever the whole number is, it's just not good. 
Um, it, it's, this is not about whose fault it is and someone should do something different. It's just what happens. It's relationally complicated. And throughout the year, you don't notice it so much, right? Because you can, you can have a lunch with two or you get together with a three for dinner or whatever. You can meet at different times in different places and you can make sure that everyone gets there. But at Christmas, ah, Christmas, the time frame is so compressed right? And figuring out who gets to be with whom and making sure that we properly manage the premium dates, right? Christmas Eve, Christmas Day, Boxing Day, those are the premium days. And you have to make sure that you rotate around who's where so that everyone is getting their equal treatment and you adjust by years. It's complicated. Complications really begin when parents split up. And thankfully, that's not been part of my experience, but it is for many. For many of you, you know what that's like. Now add into that like a first baby scenario, okay? Uh, we were um, the first to have a grandchild in the area, okay? So suddenly our Christmas dance card was filling up faster, right? And you, have you, uh, you get to the place where you look ahead and you anticipate somebody else's Christmas dance card and you see a hole in somebody else's card. If we do what we do, what we're planning to do, then they will be left with a hole in their Christmas dance card. If we go to them on Christmas Eve and we spend time there, and then we leave and we go to the other side of the family for Christmas morning, that's the plan. And then you realize that house number one has no Christmas morning plan. You make it worse. You're the ones with the first new grandchild. What are we going to do? How do you manage this? How do you make everybody happy? How do you balance that around? How do you deal with these real-life people programming issues? And um, you, you need to have a go-to for this kind of thing because they, uh, they, they, they show up in different places all the time. So the first thing I think you should do is always you know, get your mind in the right space and pray about it. Number two is you, you need a mentor-like person. And if you don't have one of those, then you need to write that on your Christmas list as something that you need. You need one of those people going forward. It's the, the person that you, you go to when you need to make that call. When you say, I don't know what to do. Who do I ask? You need a sounding board. You, you need that person who will be open and honest and who's cheering for you. Someone who will uh, look into you. They understand your dynamics. And someone who you can call and you can just say, what do I do? How do I balance it all? I got no idea what to do. You need someone who, who might just not answer the question for you. Maybe they'll tell you a story. And I can remember being told some of these stories by uh, someone. So this is not my story. It has nothing to do with me. Um, I'm just going to tell you this story. And maybe your story can be something like this. So just insert your name at the beginning as if you're being spoken to. So Graham, just a little while after Gwen and I got married, these are just made-up names, okay, uh, to protect the innocent. Uh, one night after we had been married, uh, we were getting all ready. And we're going to go out and celebrate our anniversary. And so we dressed up. So you know it's not about me. And we're looking fine. And uh, we're, we're just about out the door. Okay? And we're, we're, we're standing there and the, the phone rings. And it turns out it's my mom. And my mom says, Bert, your daddy's acting up again. I need you to get over here and help me out right now. Now Bert's dad was a Second World War II vet. Uh, and, and in some sense he was a hero. But as is too common for World War II vets or veterans of any war, when they, when they leave that war, they come back and they begin to fight a different war at home. And he had a number of different battles to fight. This particular night, one of those previous battles had kicked in. 
So Bert's on the phone, and you can imagine it's, it's one of those phones that's actually attached to a wall. Do you remember that? It's a wall phone, and uh, Bert's standing there, phone in hand with a long wiggly cord here, and he's looking at the door, because at the door, there's Gwen. She's dressed. She's ready to go. She's going to celebrate. Phone in his hand, dilemma in his mind, what do I do? Well, in that evening, Bert made what he later called a strategically bad decision. He said, I got in my car, and I rushed off to try and resolve a 40-year-old problem that I wasn't about to be able to solve, and in so doing, I created a brand new problem at home. That might be close to, uh, close enough to, to, to the story that some of you are living in right now. So Bert's advice, based on his bad decision, is to follow the plan. You go and you celebrate just like you planned. You stay for your allotted time and then you pack it up and you move to the next place that you've planned to be. And it might very well be good advice, but most likely it will feel terrible the first time you enter into this kind of arena. To some degree and to some extent, this is all of our story. Complexity with relationship. And here's the, the thing about uh, Christmas that makes it so wonderful. It sometimes also seems so terrible. Mostly wonderful, but it's a little bit tricky. The thing at Christmas that creates the tension is this. The Christmas exaggerates all the bad. And, and at the same time, it, it points out something that is just incredible. Because Christmas is the most wonderful time of the year, but it's not the most wonderful time of the year because of what is happening around us. Because what is happening at Christmas time is often exaggerated. It's highly compressed. At Christmas, we get reminded clearly that there are problems we can't solve. There are people that we can't control, and there are expectations that we can't meet. The next thing that you don't want to see, but it shows up if you are honest enough to look in that mirror, I'm the problem that I can't solve. I'm the person that I can't seem to control. And I'm the person oftentimes setting expectations that others can't meet. And it's entirely possible that I set expectations that even I can't meet. So Christmas really is the most wonderful time, but it's not the most wonderful time because of what is happening. Christmas is absolutely the most wonderful time because of what happened. And at Easter, we celebrate a one-time event. But at Christmas, we celebrate a season where we look forward to an event where God changed everything. When God sent his son into the world to become the center of history. But more important for you and more important for me, God sent his son into this world to become the centerpiece of my life and the center of your life. And when Jesus is the center of your life, it centers our life around something stable, on something hopeful, on something that gives us a sense of purpose beyond just me. It's just a sense that I don't need to fear, even though there are many things to fear. 
It's a sense that Christmas is not the most wonderful time of the year because of who is with us, but that it's the most wonderful time of the year for we are reminded who is for us. And the darker things, well, they they get complicated. They get much more complicated. And in those times that everything gets a little bit exaggerated and everything is too fast and there's not enough time, at the same time, in the Christmas season, we are able to focus on the light of the world that has come personally into this world. And that has made an extraordinarily practical difference in each of our lives. Now, you've probably heard somewhere, maybe you studied, maybe someone told you, that at the beginning of the New Testament, there are four Gospels. Maybe you know them. Matthew, and then Mark, and then Luke, John. You're very good at this. Very good. The first three, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we call the synoptic gospels. And I tell you that because I know you're going to Christmas parties. And if you need something to wow people at Christmas parties, you want to drop synoptic gospels. It's just a fun way to talk. Um, John, his gospel, however, is just entirely different. Unlike Matthew and Luke, he doesn't have a birth announcement. It's not there. He doesn't talk about the birth of Jesus in the same way. John gives us a different perspective. And the thing that that makes John's gospel so so fascinating to me, why it stands out, why that's such a big deal, maybe you you just never picked up this before, you just kind of keep going, right? Just read what's there. Maybe all this stuff's just kind of new to you, and so you you don't ever think about it. Maybe you think the Bible is, well, it's just a bunch of stories. It's just a giant storybook. But the Bible is really a whole bunch, a collection of historical manuscripts that have been bound together into one large historical manuscript. But the thing that makes John's gospel unique, particularly at this time of the year, think about this, is that John wrote the gospel when he was a very old man. The gospel of John was likely written the latest of all the gospels. And when John sat down to write his gospel, we don't know this for sure, but it seems like when he did it, he was thinking, I better write this stuff down because I don't have a lot of time left. And I want to make sure that these stories are passed on for future generations. And we know from the book of Acts that John has told his stories many, many times. Imagine if you were someone who actually sat at the feet of Jesus. Just imagine how popular you would be with any Christian or anyone who was trying to figure out this Jesus thing. And everywhere he went, anytime he's there, they say, John, tell us what it was like. What was it like to be with Jesus? What was that like? So we've heard the stories, but you're an eyewitness. Give me the insider version of what I've already heard. John was the person who uh, most famously reduced God to one word. John is the person that sat back and said, "Let let me make all this as simple and as clear and essential to you as possible. God is love. John's the one who said that. That's his thing. The thing that's so amazing about John saying that is because of what John had seen and what John had experienced in his life. When he's writing, he's a very, very old man. He's experienced loss like you cannot begin to imagine, no matter what your story is like. He's lost friends. He's lost family members. And in some ways, he's lost almost his whole society and culture. John was alive when Nero sent General Vespasian into Galilee. And and Vespasian began to work his way south through Galilee, just rolling up all of the Jewish towns and cities. 
murdering thousands upon thousands of Jewish people, sending thousands upon thousands of Jewish men and Jewish women and even Jewish children into the Roman slave market. John lived through that. John lived through the time when Vespasian left his son Titus outside the city of Jerusalem, the holy city of Jerusalem, many where many, many of the things that John had experienced and lived happened in that city. Some of the most amazing events happened there, and he either saw that city surrounded, we don't know exactly where he was for sure, but perhaps he was in the city of Jerusalem for those seven months when the people starved to death, when plagues broke out. The Roman army built a wall and a ditch, entirely around the city of Jerusalem, trying to get inside. And at the end of that war in 70 AD, John was either there or he heard the story about how the temple was torn apart, burned to the ground, all of the stones pushed aside. More than a million Jews were slaughtered in that. And reports from 100,000 to 300,000 slaves were taken out of one city, the city of Jerusalem. They absolutely flooded the Roman slave market. And by the time that he had written this, John's friend Peter and his friend Paul had both been executed by Nero. And through all of that bloodshed and all of that loss and all of that chaos, all that more than we can even begin to imagine, John never lost faith. And at the end of the Gospel of John, here's what he writes, John 20, verse 30. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. In other words, what I gave you here is just the tip of the iceberg. It's just an example. Uh, it's just a little bit of what I experienced walking with Jesus for three years. But, but these are written that you might believe. The reason I'm even writing this stuff down, I'm leaving it with you, is that I'm hoping that after you read the account of Jesus' life, you won't simply be impressed. You won't be amazed. You won't have said, what a nice story. I'm writing this so that you might believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life. Not physical life, obviously, right? Because anybody who's reading the book already has physical life. That you might have a different kind of life in his name. And in spite of what John had seen, and in spite of what John had smelled, in spite of what John had experienced for year after year, at the end of his life, with the destruction of everything that was important to him, with the loss of basically everyone he knew and everyone he loved, John still believed. He believed that Jesus was the source of some kind of life beyond the physical life. When he begins his gospel, he doesn't begin it with a birth narrative, right? That's why this is so fascinating, right? Because when Jesus was crucified, Jesus is on the cross, he's dying, and and he says to John, this same John that we're talking about, I want you to take Mary, my mother, as your mother. And, And then he says to Mary, the same sort of time, I want you to take John as your son, So we don't know exactly how much time they spent together, but John and Mary spent a lot of time together. Some people said that they moved from from the Israel kind of region, they moved and they lived in Ephesus. And he took care of her until she died. 
And we know that John heard the birth narrative over and over. If anybody had the opportunity to say, hey, Mary, did you know? Right? How, Mary, Mary, tell me what it was like. Just tell me one more time. What was it like when you discovered you're pregnant? What, what was it like? What, what did it feel like when that angel was near to you? What was that experience? Tell me what it's like. Give me the facts. What was it like to know that you bore the Son of God? He must have known this story as well or better than anyone else in the world besides Mary herself. Yet when John begins the gospel, he doesn't begin with shepherds. There's no mention of the manger. He doesn't reference Egypt. He doesn't say anything about Herod or about the slaughter of all the baby boys in Bethlehem. He begins with the significance of the birth of Jesus. Just like they were very, very dark days when John wrote his gospel, Jesus, uh, John was reminded that that the time when Jesus was coming, it was also a very, very dark time. And when he sat down and he began, uh, began to write his gospel, before he got to the narrative, before he got to the details and the stories, this is what he said. And it's, it's so powerful with the context of who he is, right? Because in this time in our life, it's, it's this season of our lives when it all gets so complicated. And we, when we are reminded of who is coming, but we're also reminded of who won't be coming. When, we're, we're, when we are reminded of what we are going to get, we're also reminded of what we will never get. Jesus be, uh, John begins the gospel of the birth of Jesus this way. He says, in him, Jesus was life. Not physical life. In him, and John is just trying to put this into words. How do I say this? I've had all these experiences. I've done all these things. I've seen it. And I, I had to have time to process it. And now I've got this additional perspective. I know that things come and go. I know that this is hard and complicated. People have died. Oh my goodness. So many people have died. And he, he's seen the destruction of everything important. Basically his whole culture. He summarizes this. When I think about Jesus... The best way I know how to put this, in him was life. And that life was the light of all mankind. And this is such a huge statement. Again, you probably just gloss right over it. Because when Jesus showed up on the planet, people began to view him as the Jewish Messiah. They thought that Jesus was going to do something and it would be regional. That Jesus was going to be for Israel what Israel wanted. They imagined that Jesus, would, what, what he was going to do would be a manifestation or a continuation of that old covenant between God and Abraham. But John sits back now as an old man, and he's got to be ruminating, right? I realize that Jesus didn't come simply for us. Jesus didn't come simply for the Jews. That what Jesus had come for was for all mankind. That he brought this essential element of life. That he brought a light that was for all mankind. And John was there the day that he heard that Jesus had risen from the dead. And they were all blown away, right? And so they asked him after that, is this now the time that you're going to restore the kingdom of Israel? Is this now when you are going to restore the nation of Israel? Will we rise again are you just about going to gather people together and get these Romans and get them out of here and reestablish our independence? Is now the time, Jesus? And, Jesus? and John was there when Jesus said, that's none of your 
business. Your business, the reason that you're here is because you are to go to every single nation. You are to share with every people group, with every ethnic group and every language, every single group, what you have heard me say. Tell them all of it. You are to make disciples of all nations. This light isn't a Jewish light. This light is for all mankind. And then John says this, okay? He, he, he's starting, just starting the gospel. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness. And then he, he must have thought about what that darkness was, right? Darkness that we can't even really begin to imagine. In spite of everything that happened, everyone who's died, everyone who's been executed, all those people who were crucified, everyone who was taken away and sold into slavery, in spite of the fact that the whole Jewish nation is basically out of business at this point, in spite of the fact that the temple and the entire sacrificial system that had been essential to his life and the life of his nation for hundreds of years was basically now out of business, never to be restarted, by the way, in spite of the fact that everything that I have grown to know and to love and to call home, it's all gone. In spite of all that, the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not. And then it feels like he's writing, he's got to take a pause there again. Good long pause. And everyone knows what light's for, right? Light shines in the darkness and you can see things in the darkness. It exposes the darkness. But this light, this light of Christ, it shines in the darkness and it's as if the darkness, as hard as it has tried to put it out, to snuff it out, to overwhelm it, to seize it, to imprison it, to surround it, as hard as it seems that our world and our culture tried to blow out the light, John says the darkness has not overcome it. This is a man who got news that the Apostle Paul had been executed, that his friend Peter had been executed. Perhaps he's the last living apostle. And with what I can only imagine is a grin on his face, I'm sure he wrote, in, in, in spite of everything this world had tried to do to eradicate the light that is life, he wrote, the darkness has not overcome it, not overwhelmed it. The darkness has not put it out. Caesar couldn't do it. Tiberius couldn't do it. Nero couldn't do it. The destruction of the temple couldn't do it. The death of Jesus hadn't done it. This was John who had raced to the tomb, the empty tomb, when he heard that the body was missing. And he ran there because he was told that someone had taken the body. And he raced to the tomb, and he was fast. He beat Peter there. And when he got there, he was the first one there, and he, he waited. He didn't go in because... Nobody rushes into an empty tomb except Peter. And then eventually, John peers into the tomb. It's the same guy, the same John that had breakfast with Jesus on the beach. This is the, the John that was absolutely convinced that no matter what happened in his life, and no matter what we face in this life, and no matter how deep the heartache, and no matter how extreme the fear no matter how deep the depression, there is a light 
that shines in the darkness. And there is no amount of darkness and there is no type of darkness that can put it out. So at Christmas, when we are confronted, as in maybe no other time of the year, Christmas, when we are confronted with the fact that there are problems that we cannot solve. We have problems. You have problems that you can't solve. That you might just be a problem that someone else is trying to solve. When we are confronted with the fact that there are people we just can't control. No matter how rational we are, no matter how many times we try to explain it to them slowly, no matter how many times we tell our stories so that you'll get it, no matter how many times we try to teach them to be empathetic in their listening, no matter how many conversations we have, there are people we just can't control. And there are expectations that, that you are never going to meet. Just like oftentimes, you and I, we set expectations for other people that they can't meet. We were reminded that in the midst of all of that darkness. Jesus is the life and light who overcomes the dark. There is always hope. There is always a reason to believe. There is always a God who hears our prayers. There is always a reason to wake up and take the next step. Don't give up. Because what makes this the most wonderful time of the year is not necessarily what's happening around you. But what happened when your heavenly father sent his son into this world? Because in him, the light of all mankind, the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. Not then, not now, and not ever. Heavenly Father, this lands... uh, for each of us in different ways. And for some of us, we feel like the light of hope is is almost extinguished. For for others of us, there is a reminder of what we believe every single Christmas um, that we've ever experienced as far back as we can remember. But Father, thank you for the promise. Thank you for the sustaining of this truth. Thank you for sustaining and inspiring John as he wrote these words. Thank you. That our context, as dark as it might be, is nowhere near as dark as John's. And that through the ages and through the years, we have the opportunity to hear someone who sat at the feet of the light of life, who sat at the feet of our Savior and our Lord. And I pray that in this Christmas season, as we navigate the complexity, that we would not lose sight of the fact that there is a living Savior who is the light of the world, the light of all mankind, who is our light, and who has brought us life. We pray all this in the matchless name of Jesus our Lord. Amen. The Lord of heaven and earth and everything that has been created chose You, as you are, in all of your darkness, and said you were worth it, and he came for you.
This kind of information has the possibility of transforming the way that you live. May that be the way that you hear it, experience it, and live it this week. Be blessed in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. You may be seated. Thanks for being with us today. It's better when you're here. Better when we're together. And I believe that this kind of connection is something that God gives to us. It's a gift for us to experience and to be a part of. So I'm glad that you were able to share that with us today. Share it with somebody else this week, I pray also, right? That you would take this and offer somebody else kindness and, and grace and beauty. And, and, and you're going you're to do that because as you leave today, you're not just walking out, you're going to be sent because you are going somewhere. And as you go, I want to remind you that we are Christ-focused. It's all about Jesus. We are spirit-empowered. What we do is not because we work really hard. It's because the Spirit of God works through us, and we are mission-focused because we don't want to forget what the last thing Jesus told us was before he left. This is what I want you to be about. That mission is for everyone, everywhere, all the time. Go do some good.